0: Welcome to Life on Pause, a podcast defining the experience of being a young adult with cancer.
1: Each episode, we explore issues impacting young adults in
2: and after treatment.
0: Like what you hear? Have something to add?
2: Come join us for next month's recording, the third Tuesday at 6 p.m.
0: Tonight, we're going to talk about diagnosis stories and, and a lot of the events and details that follow that. To get started for anyone who's willing to share we'd like to just hear what what your story really was so starting with you know where you were in your life signs that you first noticed um things might not be totally right kind of your your trip with the doctors and everything like that so i more than willing to to kick us off so hi my, my name is casey i was diagnosed with acute lymphoblastic leukemia at age 22 at that point, I was a I was a senior in college. I was wrapping up my final semester, and I started to notice something was wrong about about a month or a month and a half before graduation. Um, I had been working really hard on wrapping up schoolwork and and those responsibilities, so I thought I was just pretty burnt out. But I, I was certainly having night sweats. I mean, like had to change my shirt. I was sweating so much, and that was that started happening on like a nightly basis. And I wasn't particularly stressed because it was the end of my senior year. So I did think that was odd, but thought maybe I was just a little burnout. And then I got sick and it, it didn't really go away. It was a, a lingering cold that turned into persistent fever. So I was actually about to take my last college final exam ever. But the day before I thought I just need to go to the university health services and that started some, some blood work up at Penn State and they don't have, you know, like a fully functional lab, but enough to determine that something was not right. And so with within four hours, I, I was at Penn State Hershey. And that morning woke up to kind of getting diagnosed in the Penn State Cancer Institute. So it felt like a very quick progression in the moment. But if I look back, really was a month or a month and a half of, of not feeling well. I just it was never even in my range of possibilities that it could be something that serious. So. was certainly a big shock and disrupted what was going to be a a pretty happy week, but we got through it.
3: My name is Kelly. I was diagnosed with osteogenic sarcoma in my spine when I was twenty. I was kind of started in high school, my senior year, as playing softball, and I, I fell. and They had me doing physical therapy. We just thought I had all this pain shooting down my leg, and we just kind of thought it was for me injuring myself so for like the next year it just kept happening and I just kept taking ibuprofen and I didn't think anything of it and then my senior year in high school we were doing that presidential fitness test and I ran to pick up the eraser off the floor and I felt and couldn't get back up so they found a tumor my senior year and they removed it and said that that was not cancerous. And then a year later, a tumor popped up while I was at college. It started getting worse down my leg. And um, when I went back for a checkup, they found the other tumor. That one was biopsied and was cancerous. So dropped out of college and then did all my treatments. And now I'm 24
4: years out of that. I was nine years old germ cell, neostinal cancer. It's a little rare. So I was 17 when I was diagnosed. That's my senior year of high school. So I remember I started, actually, it's the very first time, you know, in the football season. I noticed that I started getting shortness of breath. I would just get tired really fast. And we weren't quite sure why. It seemed like I was out of shape. I kind of just kept working harder. And when football season ended and roughing team started, my shortness of, shortness of breath got a lot worse and I started coughing real bad. So I think it was a we they didn't know maybe it was like ammonia or something strange. So I went to ER they did um they did an X-ray they're anticipating really a really bad case of ammonia. Actually, it was actually a tumor in my tra- chest pressing against my willing pipe. So yeah, January of two thousand and thirteen. So we did um it was pretty it was tumor size was size of my fist. So we did um chemotherapy, shrink it, and we did open heart to remove the tumor. And it was kind of like, oh, everything seemed good more we exciting for me to go to college. Then three months into the summer here it came back and kind of spread to my body so i do another six rounds of chemo and we have to get a stem cell so i take a whole another year off from college just getting through the chemo um, And the odds when i finished with the bone marrow i did a lot of time just to rest i think um afterwards i did chemo pills but i finished treatment in 2014 so i've been out about seven years now so
2: i'm lauren i was diagnosed in 2020 with non-hodgkin's lymphoma it had started for me where I was, so I, at the time was 29 and I was driving with my then fiance and I was driving and I noticed that I had a swollen lymph node in my neck and it was very weird because I'd had, I've had like cysts before I've had other things and I was like, oh, that feels really weird. And I wasn't too sure about it. And I said, you know, honey, have you noticed this? Like, I, I feel this. And he's like, no, I really haven't. And I was like, that was weird. And a couple of days go by and I'm like, I don't know. This feels really weird. I don't know if it was my mind playing tricks on me, but I'm like, this might have got bigger. Like, I'm not too sure. So it was uh, in June, July of COVID. So I had a virtual appointment with my PCP and I said, hey, I'm really, you know, I'm kind of concerned I have this mask. And she tried to look at it on um, on the phone and said, ah, how about I just send you to go get a biopsy? You know, I can't look at it now you know, I really can't tell, got a biopsy, the, the people were wonderful and calming me down because I was a mess because I'm like, Oh, what is this? And of course, there's that little thought in your mind. Like, this is cancer. Like, I'm only 29. Like, this is ridiculous to even think like that. And I was like, Oh, no, you know, but we'll see. And then when I got the biopsy results back, the doctor's office that I had at the time left a lot to be desired which was uh, not, they're not related to Hershey. I got my treatment at Hershey, but this is not. And they had a receptionist call me and tell me that my mass was consistent with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. And they just said it out loud. I didn't know what it was. I didn't know what it meant. I Googled it. Oh, it's cancer, but no one's telling me what the next steps are. No one's telling me what to do. It was very, very disheartening and very sad. I was just very overwhelmed. About a week or about a week later, because I'm was a hot mess, I took off work. I was like, I can't. I have, we have to get this all. Met with the oncologist at Penn State and started the whole process very quickly. After, you know, made some big, big life decisions, big plans, and started chemotherapy. Did that for a couple months and ended right before Halloween of 2020. A week later, I got married, bald and all. I don't regret that decision. Everyone was like, "You're crazy." To be doing this a week after, thank you. Uh, everyone said you're crazy to be doing this. And I said, well, why why the heck not? So we know, it's going on a year of being in remission. In remission, yay. But it's hard not to just say screw things and just do things anyway. I have to resist the urge to just like pick up and go travel and do things like that. But doing okay, doing all right. Hi, this is Kayla. So I was diagnosed with nodular lymphocyte predominant Hodgkin's lymphoma when I was 15. So a sophomore in high school, it started as a cough. So I went to the doctor, it was a pediatrician, because I was 15. And they looked at or they like, listened to my lungs and all that sort of stuff. And thought everything was clear. But for some reason, the doctor was like, I want you to go get an x ray. So I did that. And they saw what they thought were an enlarged vein uh, behind my heart. So then I was referred to cardiology. And they did a bunch of like, I think uh, there was like a stress test or like a bunch of other tests and that came back clear. So they did an MRI and that's when they found enlarged lymph nodes. So then I was referred to a surgeon who I didn't get in to see, I want to say for a month and a half. And then when I saw the surgeon, they were like, oh, well, we don't think there's, this is anything huge, but you know, we'll take them out and biopsy them just to be safe. I was like, okay, cool. So I did that. uh, I think about, A week after that, yeah, I would want to say is when the biopsy was. It had been about a week, I want to say, after the biopsy and I hadn't heard anything. And I guess I had a routine, like an appointment with my doctor and it was actually scheduled for the day later. But my mom called and she's like, oh, the appointment's been moved up in the day. I didn't think anything of it. So I went to the appointment. It was so weird because when I got to the doctor's office, I went right back. They didn't take my height, my weight. My blood plush, my blood pressure, my temperature, anything. And I knew something was up. And then I think it was the nurse practitioner came in. She was like, So we got the results of your biopsy back. And they're not what we were hoping for. You have what's called nodular lymphocyte prominent Hodgkin's lymphoma. And I was like, wow. Cause like I had done some research because I'm just that type of person. And I was literally sitting there for about 10 minutes, just saying, Wow, over and over. And it was like, it it was just insane. And I think it took a while for me to like, for it to sink in, but then I didn't actually have that much time for it to sink in because the next morning I was up at Hershey. So the time from like diagnosis to when I actually started, like the next step was really quick. But the time from when I started feeling bad to when I was actually diagnosed was about four months. So in a way it was long, but at the same time, it seemed really quick. And um, I'm now six and a half years, I think (laughs) how long I've been at of treatment.
5: I'm Sammy. Um, I, like many of you guys, were, was diagnosed in college. So it was a little bit weird for me because three months before I was diagnosed, my best friend had died of brain cancer. So like a lot of the symptoms that I may have noticed otherwise, like tiredness, lethargy, you know, just like not feeling right. I was like, oh, this is just me coping with this trauma and so it was finals week it was the day before my intro to chem final which rough already and i was like i've had this just recurring earache and like i think my lymph nodes are like swollen and i was like pressing to like the bottom of my neck which i wasn't taking anatomy so i went to uhs and was like hi i think i have an ear infection Can you just like give me some antibiotics or something? Because like, I can feel my lymph nodes are on this side are swollen. And she was like, oh, honey, that's not your lymph node. That's your thyroid. And I was like, I don't even know what that organ is. So I, in between finals, went home, four hour drive, and I had like a biopsy done. And it was like just so off-putting that they were like, yeah, it's cancer. But good news, it's the good kind. So you're not going to die and you don't need to worry about a single thing. But like having the experience of seeing my best friend die and then being diagnosed with the same general experience as her was just sort of like really, really off-putting. So I'm now, I just passed five years out of treatment and I had like a big party for that.
1: I'm Kisera. I was diagnosed with double hit high B cell non-Hodgkin's lymphoma back in August of 2020. So I just got up like any other day, went to work and I was sitting up front with my one coworker and I just felt like this lump all of a sudden in my chin line. And I looked at her and she's like, I can see it. It's huge. And it felt like the size of a golf ball. So I did, it was a Friday. So I did an online urgent care because I was worried about it. And they're like, Oh, it's just a swollen lymph node do warm compresses and see your primary care if it doesn't go away in a week. And I already had an appointment coming up with my primary care that Tuesday. So I called in cuz of COVID and see if I could just come into the office instead of doing a virtual appointment and she's like, "Yeah." So I go in and she's like, "I'm not quite sure what it is, but let's do an ultrasound to be safe," but she's like more than likely they're going to come back and say they want a CT scan too. So we did the ultrasound and the CT scan and they still couldn't quite figure out what it is. So they sent me to the general surgeon and he's like, well, I don't know what it is either. We can either take it out or we can leave it in and see what happens. And I was like, well, if I'm going to have to get it out anyway, we might as well just do it. So in July, I got it removed and it took a while to come back because the two pathologists at the hospital that I went to couldn't agree on what it was. One thought it was Non Hodgkins, one didn't. So they sent it to John Hopkins where it came back about, I think it took like three weeks. So they gave me my official diagnosis. And from there, I went to the oncologist. And after that, it just moved quick. Within three weeks, I had a bone marrow biopsy, my port placed, and started chemo. Now I'm almost at my one year. I finished treatments in January of this year. So I have my month check coming up so hopefully we'll still be good
6: my name is brady lucas i was originally diagnosed in 2005 at age eight years old when i originally was diagnosed i was playing basketball with my older brother um, in the basement of my father's house One of those little tykes basketball hoops, and boys being boys went up for a shot my brother knocked me and hit my head um very hard on the cement flooring. And then kind of from that moment, I started getting headaches, got a gamut of different things. Would come coming from school, bawling my eyes out. And I was the type of kid that got up every morning and loved going to school. School was one of my favorite things as a child and wasn't happy. Brady anymore um, was more let me cry and just sleep when I can and, and do what I can. So my mom obviously knew something was not right from the beginning. About four or five appointments to the pediatrician later, um, they finally recommended me to an ear, nose, and throat doctor. And the ear, nose, and throat doctor thought at the time it may be mono. And so she did a CBC count. But I think she also knew deep down that it was cancer. So once she did the CBC count, it came back that normal white blood cell counts are four and a half to, f- to 10,000. Mine was at 91,000. So we knew that it was high risk, and it was also acute lymphoblastic leukemia. So then to kind of fast forward a little bit, I had a second diagnosis story. So when in September of 2010, I was a freshman in high school, just started my freshman year, was very excited about the upcoming football game on Friday and just being a normal freshman in high school and had a go- my first varsity golf match on Tuesday, which at the time, starting varsity golf as a freshman at the school I was at was... A huge honor because we were a very good golf team and won county championships or even get, got close to winning district championships almost every year and started my first freshman golf match um ended up getting a 13 on the last hole which was pretty funny at the time um but really just kind of smiled it off and everybody on the, the golf team at this time was sick which was ironically enough that me with a compromised immune system was not sick and then Really jinxed myself because the next day I was sitting in biology class and to this day I can vividly picture what happened was I started not feeling well and then, you know, got worse, got worse. And then Friday I spiked the fever. My mom wouldn't let me go to the football game and I was so fear infuriated at her. I just was like so mad and didn't really understand why. And then obviously, you know, got worse and Sunday came and I had a very sharp pain in my shoulder and. Knowing my past, I've had pneumonia, you know, many, many times. And that's what we thought it might be. So we went to Hershey to the ER and the Jets and Patriots were playing on the emergency room. And uh, we walked in about six hours later after sitting in a hospital bed in the emergency room. My oncologist came back and said, you know, I don't know how to tell you this any other way, but your cancer came back. So we were had some different, you know, experiences and two different uh, diagnosis stories, but I'm. Now, almost 11 years post marrow transplant. I'm so super excited that everything worked out and was able to, to experience everything.
0: Thanks, everyone. And I, I agree. It's funny. You have very, what I think are clear memories, like at leading up to the moment, like things that, because it was such a, a scarring moment in the end, really stick out to you in your memory, like, like an NFL game that was on or, or something of that nature. But something that people say and experience a lot is that after diagnosis, it's, it feels like a blur and and it feels like what follows immediately after hearing those words is, is, is just hard to remember. And I know from my experience, I, I don't even know if blur is the right word there. There are things I just do not remember at all from the, from the first month. And I would attribute some of that to steroid brain. And I would attribute some of that to just like blacking it out or just not really being able to, process what's going on, but what what were other people's experience with what happened after you were diagnosed?
5: So it was about a week turnaround from when they did the biopsy to they were like, oh, you should probably get surgery and like, you're going to be on winter break soon. So that's a prime time. It'll be really simple, really quick turnaround. Like you'll get that done and then you won't have any follow-up treatment. So it was That weird oscillation again between really serious and blowing it off. And during my surgery, they came back and they were like, there was a golf ball lodged in your throat and you couldn't see it from the outside. I couldn't even feel it. And now looking back, I'm like, oh, when I would sleep and I would turn my head to the side, I couldn't breathe. So it's just really weird, like looking back and like trying to trace back like the footsteps of when did this start? Why did it start? All of that reminiscing.
2: I remember as well. the. Luckily, I was working at home when I got the news, when I got the phone call, when the results came back. I was unfortunately by myself. So it was just completely overwhelming. But my then-fiancé, now-husband, immediately was like leaving, left work and came home. I take it into the fact that I'm really in that moment, I was very glad that I was not at work. I really, cause they just called, called my, you know, and I was able to hear and I was able to, I mean, I I can't tell you what happened in the next two or three days. I don't quite remember. I know that there were phone calls made and getting a referral to Hershey. And like, I'm not dealing with these people who just call and drop this stuff on me and don't give me any support, you know, what was happening. To me, it kind of felt like I had my the walls around me and the floor beneath me just kind of dropped. And I'm here. And this is happening. And I have no idea what to do next. And as a planner, terrified, absolutely terrified, because I had no idea. And I'm the type that I stayed off the internet, because I had no idea what this was. Yeah, I had no idea what this was. I didn't know what I was going to face. But I also knew that I have a strong faith in science and the medical community. So I'm like, all right, any chance we got to do this? They got it. It's, you know, I have no training in medical. I have no, in, in anything like this. I have no way to do anything like this. So definitely the idea that Sammy mentioned, the idea of like, okay, did I feel bad? Were there any of the other symptoms? And a lot of them were night sweats and other types of things. And it's like, well, I mean, who doesn't sweat at night? <laughs> it was like, you know, it was very hard for me to tell. I'm grateful in a way that my mass was so visible and that I immediately knew something wasn't right.
3: I always equated being told, outward. I was hit in the face with a brick. It just smacked you in the face. And I was like, oh, by the way, here's this pit tumor and it's in your spine. And, and I don't remember. The funny thing is, I was diagnosed right after my four days after my birthday, which is in November. And I, don't remember Thanksgiving at all like that year. I guess I know we had it. I just remember there's pieces of things that I remember. So, like, I remember being went in to meet with the oncologist and he said, This is what we're going to do. This is how many rounds of chemo we're going to do. And then we're going to drink the tumor and then we're going to take it out. Then I don't remember anything until like I started in December. So it was very fast. It was like half a month turnaround when I started. And I remember my My grandfather was with me. Always had the comb over, and my hair started falling out right before Christmas. It was just the whole thing was going. It was just falling out. We were throwing it in a trash can right next to me, and my grandfather picked the whole lot of hair up and put it on top of his head. And we have this picture of him like he's wearing my hair toupee. It was like the best thing, and it's funny because that's what I remember, and I don't remember all the rest of the crap in between. But so yeah, there's definitely like a. A blur. You know, you don't remember stuff and you don't even think that all the symptoms that you thought you had, like, you just never equated it to cancer. I remember directly
2: after the diagnosis, like, going home. Well, first, I mean, my mom stop at McDonald's because I needed something to make me not feel like I was insane. And then I remember going straight to my grandparents to tell them. And then calling my dad who was driving home. it's probably not best to tell your dad you have cancer when they're driving. I really was horrible at telling people. I picked the worst times and then I remember the next day going right to Hershey spending the whole day there. I remember leaving starving and then I remember trying telling my best friends. And then after that weekend, everything else is a blur. Like, I remember, like, bits and pieces. Like, I remember my brother didn't want to talk to me, didn't want anything to do with me. I remember sometimes being in the hospital, but, like, there are specific things that, like, will pop up on my Facebook memories. And, like, that definitely did not happen. like, I don't know that. And then, like, my mom's like, no, it did. Like, I I guess I went over to my friend's house, and I guess I fell asleep on her couch or whatever for hours. And there's a picture of me on Facebook. But, like, I don't remember that. And I think it's just me pushing it away. Like pushing away everything or I don't know, not everything, but like there's just bits and pieces where I, where everything's just a blur. Like I almost like blacked out different parts of it, I guess. And I feel like I've talked to a lot of people about that and I think it's similar just because it causes, there's just so much trauma and stuff associated with the memories. I just don't want to deal with I think, or at least my subconscious doesn't want to deal with it.
3: I don't know much about formation of memories. But I am
2: wondering if memory formation is compromised when you have like a huge like hit of adrenaline and cortisol in the body. I know that I purposely told my husband to, he came with me on all the appointments. I purposely told someone else to be with me on things, not only to be there for me for support wise, but also to take notes and be more aware of what we were being told because he was able to turn, he was able to have a more analytical, he's also very science-minded way. And at some points he had to stop the oncologist and look at me and said, you hear what he's saying? Because you're zoning out again. Like, are you, you know, th- th- that kind of thing. And it was very helpful to have another person because I was zoning. So I know that I had that as well, where it was like, I am not processing everything. You know, he was saying a couple of things and he would say one thing and my mind would go off fast growing was one of them where it was like, and my mind's over here. And he's like, okay. And he's like, he's like, you know, hold on to the oncologist and made eye contact with me and was like, Hey, it's okay. You need to be here right now and hear what he's saying. And, you know, are you hearing why you say it's a good thing with the chemo? And, but yeah, I'd be very curious to see if there's any studies on that as well. Shall we?
0: I do not have the background to speak to that, but I do think through this, someone had told me that you, you black out sections of memory during traumatic events. So I think that is a a thing that certainly happens and, and explains why people forget things. But Kayla, you touched on something interesting. And that was then telling people. So I think there's there's the part of like your immediate immediate family, right? And you have to let them know. You have to you know, call who needs to be called and and so forth. But how did you go about letting other people in your life know? Maybe not someone who's an immediate family member your close friend, but still someone that you felt like should know. Was it difficult to do that? And, and how did you do it?
5: I think I took, might've been the coward's way out. I had my mom tell all my friends. It worked and it was probably best for all of us.
2: I had my mom call my dad. My parents are separated. And I had my mom call my dad because I said, I can't. I'd already called my brother. Well, that day I had called my husband. I let him know what was happening. and to come home immediately. And then I had called my mom. And I had called my my brother. And by that point I was exhausted and I didn't want to ruin someone else's day with the news, which is what I felt like, you know. And I every time I called someone, I said, you know, I will call someone, I say, hey, 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 Chris, my brother, are you sitting down? Can you can you sit down? Like I need to tell you something. And it's become a thing that I just do that without even realizing, you know, when I have a big news, like, can you sit down? This is kind of big. And at that point, my mom called my dad and of course, then he called me later and he was like, <laughs> I purposely told my mom to call you, but didn't have to tell one more family member as opposed for friends. I only told immediate friends right away. And I actually started treatment then before I told everybody else, because by that point it was very obvious looking at me. I had no hair. I chose to shave my head before treatment because I didn't want to see it all fall out. I, just, I made that decision to do. It was pretty obvious by that point that that I was going through something. So I did a Facebook post about when I first started, right after I started treatment, that told everybody else, like, give me some privacy in this.
3: Like, this is what's happening, and let me deal with this, and I'll talk to you when I can. For me, it wasn't so bad telling my family members. I mean, it was obviously awful, but I think it's more awkward because I was working full time and going to school full time, so I had to go. Into my school and get all my professors sign off that I was dropping out. Like, it wasn't like they just let me. I went into one person. They were like, okay, you have to take this around to your professors and get them to sign. So by that point, it's just like, hey, I have cancer. Can you sign this? Like, I have to drop out now and then go into work. And it's the same thing. Well, I guess I'm quitting because you know, now I got cancer. So I won't be back, but I'm quitting, blah, blah, blah so i guess for that part it was not as emotional at that point so i was just like okay here it is i have to do this so but it was really
4: awkward
3: to have to go in and tell those people right away before
4: you even started anything else yeah i really don't think there's um a normative approach how you tell people there's not like a book that gives you um, a guide you need the right steps there's not really um, a right or wrong answer It's kind of doing what's right for you so i really don't I told those things a cowards of way, but to be honest, I don't think anyone knows how what to do when you have cancer and the people around you don't know what to do either. It's kinda of like um we mentioned being awkward, trying kinda the Um everyone's just so ignorant, you just don't really know what to do. So I remember me my close family they were with me when the doctors told us we kinda of have to get as a as a family unit. But a lot of my friends, I was kinda of just very direct and to I told them in person, Hey, this is a situation, um about hey, I've been down to cancer, I maybe mean, we have a plan to get through chemotherapy and we're hoping for the best and we'll do the chemo and if we get through the cancer. Unfortunately I was lucky it got through my treatment. But I think for everyone it just really um it really faces people that kinda of just face reality. Even for your friends who don't have cancer, it makes them kinda of think of themselves when you're going through. So it's definitely a reality check. So really to be honest there isn't really a right answer. It's kinda of just finding what's right for you and hopefully your your friends are very understanding supportive. They understand that it's a hard thing to go to, so it's not really a wrong way of doing it, in my opinion.
1: Mine was kind of, I knew when I got the phone call, when they're asking me to come in the office, you know, nothing's good then. But I was at work and I left and I didn't feel like after I went to, because the office is literally two doors over from where I work. So I went down and I was like, there's no way I can drive home. So I just went back to work. And my coworkers, they were really supportive in there. So they were kind of the first ones I told. And then I started getting a hold of my family and stuff and my dad and my stepmom came to the house. We let my church know and stuff. And then when they left, I was like, okay, I still got to tell my mom. And I was like, do I want to wait? Do I want to go? And I was like, I just want to get it done and over. So we told everybody close. And then about a couple of days before I started my chemo, we just made a big post on Facebook because it's an easy way to reach everybody. And by that time, we already told everybody that's close to us that really should have known right away.
6: The first time I was diagnosed, I was so young that obviously my my mom and dad pretty much took care of telling everyone. And then when I relapsed at fourteen, the first question my mom asked me was, "Do you want me to call your dad, or do you want to call your dad?" And obviously, as many other individuals spoke, I didn't want to talk to anyone um, at that point. So called my dad, and then my dad called my brother and. My dad tells a story all the time. He's like, I called your brother; he was out somewhere, and I said, "You need to get home as quick as you can." Like, we got to go somewhere. And then they obviously drove up to Hershey at that moment. But the one thing that does stick out to me about telling someone is my best friend, who we met in seventh grade, and we we're you know on the golf team together, and grew up and and playing um, sports together and things like that. I, I texted him, and it was. Funny, but also eye-opening to how many years he saved that text when we when I sent the, the relapse text and I was like, this is gonna happen. But it was obviously a very emotional thing. But ironically, funny enough, I think Facebook knew before I knew, like someone posted on my wall, like no idea how they found out that I relapsed so quick. And then, you know, everybody obviously sees the one post and they post from there and they post from there. So that was kind of like my unofficial announcement of the, of the second time. And everybody knew, knew of my first diagnosis. So it was a little different, I think, than an initial diagnosis. But, you know, obviously that played a huge factor. And then just kind of releasing to the public,
0: you know, what happened moving forward. I've heard people describe the second time as as harder news to hear. Could you speak to the differences, like what it what it felt like getting the news the second time and how that compared to to your first experience?
6: I would say I knew the second time that something was wrong and I knew it was cancer from the beginning. The second that I started getting sick on Wednesday, I had, you know, inkling, but then by the time Friday came, and then when Sunday came and I had the very sharp pain in my shoulder, I knew it was up. And my mom and I looked at each other pretty much when they said the oncologist was coming in and we knew what was about to happen, we just were trying to figure out how to fully process what was about to happen. It was harder in a way that I knew that since the first round of treatment didn't necessarily work to the full capability that we would have a whole new problem to deal with. And some of the effects from the treatment the first time were things that we had to get through. And then just realizing at the time I was... The only child that was going through the similar experience with where my liver was and my spleen was, and trying to figure out, we're going to do essentially an adult bone marrow transplant on a child, and they hadn't really done that before, so we decided to not do radiation instead of doing chemo and radiation, and that was discussed very early on. So I would say a fear, but also like a trust, and and Lauren mentioned, you know, trust in your medical providers. And I think that was really, what was the difference about the second time is I had full trust in my medical providers that they got me to the point where we got now. So I was trusting them to get me to the next point moving forward.
5: My cancer is relatively slow growing. And they were like, you're going to need to be on a sort of a high risk watch for the next 10 years. So I was just kind of getting blood work done every like three weeks, maybe a month. And there were so many points where they were like, oh, ho, ho, we think it's back. And I would have to break that news to my friends and family again and again. And they were like, oh, no, 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 it's not there. So then when they finally did a PET scan on me and they were like, there's definite growth in your lymph nodes, that was bad enough. But then they added on that it isn't responsive to typical, typical treatments. So they were like, not only do you have it again, it's that we need to look into advanced treatments and also it's relatively more deadly. So like all of that added on top of each other and then having to like break that news slowly to my friends and family, like step by step, like it's back. It's not great. And just like really, really disheartening.
0: Well, thank you both for sharing. I know that's an experience. I think only only the two of you have on the call. Something that I've heard a few people mention before, and so the other thing with kind of once once you get the diagnosis and and everything seems brand new, you find yourself in a little bit of a different world. For a lot of us, seems like we don't have a background in science or or hadn't previously been sick. It's now you're thrown into this whole new world. They have all these different rituals and processes that are new, and you're you're trying to figure out how everything works. And and I'm just curious, like how that how that experience was when you're dealing with, with such a disease, I, I can remember I was, I, I had no, I had heard of, you know, doctors doing rounds and things like that, but I didn't realize how important that was as a patient. Like, oh, I can't, like, I'm going to talk to the doctor at this, like at seven in the morning, like that's when they come through. I need to have my questions ready. My family needs to be there, like to hear the questions and answers and things like that. And I just realized like, it felt so like there was such anticipation for that every time that it was a really like big buildup. And then like, I don't want to say letdown once it was done to like things kind of ease off for the day. and, And, you know, you start the whole cycle over. So I think that really jumped out to me. And I think the one unique thing is I, the one unique thing about Penn State is I wasn't familiar with what it meant to be at a teaching hospital. And so you didn't just have doctors, you had usually numerous students accompanying those doctors as well. So, those were some of my experiences, you know, getting started and learning the new, the new world, if you will. But what else did you experience, you know, during your early phases?
4: Yeah, I actually agree with you a lot, Casey, because um, I was at Penn State and I was, when I was 17 or 18. So I was in the pediatric hospital. I was also on the adult side. So I kind of saw both sides of that world. But I remember Penn State Hershey is also um, a college campus. So it's very student based. So it's, um, you're very exhausted with the therapy. Plus, you see all these different faces all the time. It can be a little um, overwhelming at times. You don't always meet new people, but I remember at times you know, with students, it can be a little. Um, like you, see, you kind of feel like lab rat, like experiment. So it was, it was at times like I wasn't sure about um, some. Of the, I guess some of the men's students are very young, definitely they really don't have the same like um, professional experience as their um, older counterparts. So young, some of the young students weren't very personal. They'd be kind of cool sometimes. They seem very based off the books. At times is a little. It could be a little frustrating. You don't have a lot of privacy. There's always a lot of, like, um, I guess, there, 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 too, but it's kind of hard for that patient aspect as well. But it was, like said, it, was, it was interesting, in a way.
2: It's interesting that you mentioned the idea of like the rituals and the the go-to, the this step, and this step, and this step. For me, it was learning the ritual of my chemo treatments and how it would follow. Okay, we come in at this time. We'd start the pre-meds at this time. Then the first drug will be at this It'll go for about this. Okay, no reaction, good. The next one. Okay, no reaction, good. The next one. And it got to like a solid four hours or so where it was okay. You know, and I'm very grateful it was only that. The first time chemo treatment lasted about 10 hours. So I'm very grateful it went, but it was kind of like, okay, and now this part. Okay, and now the scary part when the nurses would come in completely head to toe in protective gear, putting something in my body that they don't want to be anywhere near them. Okay, cool to get over that <laughs> um that was really hard for me to get over seeing the stickers on the bags of for me was the cocktail they call it red death of uh those little things that you know if it not necessarily doesn't necessarily cause necrosis but if it could it can cause those things and it's like getting over the okay now this goes in this does this this does this and I think after having the pattern after seeing, okay, this is this, this, and having that to look forward to as, okay, this is the next part. This is the next step. This is the next step. It actually got a bit of comfort in that this was the, this was the plan and these type of things. So it actually made me feel better knowing, okay, when I come in, it's going to be this type of thing. And even if I don't have the same area, um, I was treated on the adult side. If it wasn't even the same, okay, the same room or same whatever, okay, you know, even you a different nurse, but this is the schedule of thing. This is how it's going to go. I did like having that as a, something to look forward to where it wasn't completely foreign.
1: Yeah, I kind of have to agree. It's nice. The first one's scary because you're going in and you don't like know what to expect and what's going to happen. But after the first one, you know, okay, this is how it went last time. So we're going to start with this and go from that. But my hardest thing for my treatments, because I had the double hit with the gene mutations, I had to be in the hospital for five days for my treatments because my chemo ran 24 hours. So I got stuck though with COVID. So I know Lauren can relate. My first treatment, I could have anybody come in, but it can only be one person at a time. But after my first treatment, I could only have one person the entire week and it had to be the same person. So I picked my husband, of course, but he had to work. So I spent most of my days alone, but I got really close to my nurses and my providers. So they made it a lot easier, but it was just hard to kind of learn how to adapt to that and having to kind of go through it by myself. But even though I had the nurses and the providers, I wasn't alone, but I got through it.
3: (laughs) I was the same way. All of my chemotherapy was done inpatient. And at the time, there was no children's hospital. So, I mean, I was in the pediatric wing, but sometimes I was in the adult wing. But it is hard, too, when it's all inpatient because I felt like all I wanted to do was sleep. (laughs) So it was good that I did get to sleep a lot, but it, it was exhausting for my mom who never left my side. You know, she was doing laundry at the hospital like they let her do her laundry there it was exhausting being in there for you know five days or sometimes even longer you know depending on your counts and whatever else is going on but we essentially kind of had to live there so it was it was a little weird just having to be in there all the time so that routine then you get used to too you're not even at home uncomfortable you're like the hospital wouldn't want really to come in every hour long to take your vitals and then do this and then the rounds are coming and then Kelly you mentioned your counts and that for me is a fascinating part
2: of the new world that you step into, that you learn all those value values. Uh, I'm wondering if anybody would want to talk to that experience.
3: Well, because mine was all impatient, they would let me go home even though my counts were like in the toilet. And so my sister, they let my sister come home from school once a day and give me the nipogen shot so that it would bring my my counts back up. And I don't even know how they do it now. I just know that's how I did it. She came home and could stick me every day. So I had to make sure I was really nice to her. I'm not yelling at her, but she could hurt me. <laughs> yeah, I don't even know if they do it like that anymore. Is that how it's done? Do you still just get shots until your white blood cell counts come back up? or
1: Yeah, so I would get discharged on a Friday. And then I usually would go to the cancer center that I was at on Sundays or Mondays and have to get a new Lesta shot right after, in a time frame after chemo. But after my first one, it threw my counts so high. They thought I had an infection, but then we realized, like, they tested all my other levels and they couldn't find anything and I felt fine.
5: So we held it on my second round and then we knew it was the shot then. I really like to study up on things. So I actually made a study sheet, like a cheat sheet for my mom and dad, boyfriend, just so when I was like, oh, like this lab value, they could like reference it and be clued in.
0: Kelly, just as a medical aside, but actually for leukemia, they don't do those shots because leukemia is a cancer of white blood cells. And so they don't want to give anything to stimulate growth because if they stimulate the growth of a cancer cell, that would obviously be bad. So it's a little bit more of a waiting game sometimes with that. There there are a lot of appointments for you go in and see, have my counts rebounded enough to to kind of start the next phase or whatever, you know, whatever it may be. But yeah, that was something that like, I had always seen the commercials for those. And so I knew like kind of what they were. I was like, can I get one of those? Like, let's move things along. And it, and it was explained to me, like, no, we specifically do not want to do that. That could go very wrong. But outside of that, I remember, again, just not having like a science background, it's hard to decipher what everything means. Um, like they, they give you the normal ranges, but, you know, there are some values where you can be out of the normal range. It doesn't really mean a lot. It can be a calculation of another value. But, you know, you don't know all of that when you start. So I remember what was helpful is I had a, a nurse practitioner go through and be like, hey, here are like, here are the five ones you want to watch. And like, here's kind of what they mean. And, and I started with like the, okay, here's what I'm paying attention to. And then like with each appointment, maybe I picked up what one other one meant. When you just kind of like gradually build that up through time. But I'm just so grateful that someone took the time up front to be like, hey, this is where you want to focus. And this is what we're going to pay attention to. So it felt much more manageable for both me and my family to be like, okay, we just like, we might get, 30 values back, we only need to focus on five. Anyone else on on interesting either rituals or things that they learned kind of as they were getting started with their treatment process that they thought, you know, someone as an outsider just might not know when you first start going through treatment?
2: I want to share as someone who had no knowledge, cancer does not run in my family. I have no experience with anything like this going into this, that whatever you think Either a cancer patient looks like, or treatment looks like, or any of these things looks like, you're probably wrong. There are as many, unfortunately, types of cancers as there are types of treatment, and it will look different. I had no knowledge of this going into it, but you know the idea of inpatient, outpatient, so many days on, so many days off. If you're if your treatment is intravenous, if it is you know in medication form, it is all these things. There are so many different ways of treatment, and it was just an eye-opening experience to me as someone as people that like to lump the idea of cancer into this is cancer. And it's like it's vastly varied. And um it was really eye-opening in general going through this. When I was in treatment, I knew there were people being treated with types of it was it was a radiated type of, I think it was uranium. There was something there was someone near that was being treated with this different type of thing. And I was like, that was so interesting to me. I heard a Geiger counter going and I was like, oh, wow. Was that you? Okay. Okay. (laughs) Maybe I was hearing that going on. Yeah. So many different types, you know, so many different types of things. So when people talk about treatment, you know, it's good to say, oh, you know, do you want to talk more about that? Because it is very vastly different for everybody.
5: Also to just like acknowledge and like, give like a little like shout out to all of the like medical professionals that did little humanizing things. When I was doing external beams of radiation, they would always ask me, what music would you like on for the next 20 minutes? And like, it just really made my day every day. And it was, it was delightful. One of the things that I realized was that I didn't
2: know how certain things people say, like one associated with cancer would actually affect me. Like right after my diagnosis, I was hanging out. I think it was at some youth group thing. It was like a girl's night. And they were talking about their hair and how they needed to style it perfectly. And in that moment, I just, I felt like whether or not they realized that I was going to be losing my hair, I had to move myself from that conversation. I just, I couldn't handle it. I was like, they're talking about how perfect their hair has to be. And in a few weeks, I'm not going to have any hair. And I just, I don't think I realized how, not necessarily sensitive I was, but I guess sensitive to those sort of things, and I don't think that's something you realize until you're actually going through it yourself or seeing someone you love go through it. And prior to my experience, I don't think I really had any experience like with cancer before, like my one friend when I was younger, but like I didn't talk to him in years. And so, I think there's just things that you don't know until you go through it yourself or through a loved one.
0: Totally agreed, I completely touched. The word anemic out as an adjective. I feel like I used to use that. And then when you are anemic, you just, I was like, oh, that that is not a word I'm going to use to describe something other than like true anemia. I never thought about them. And so gives you a little bit of a different spin on things. Just kind of as a nice way to, to round out, you know, going through, as we've looked at, like leading up to diagnosis and what happens, you know, immediately following that. And as you reflect back on that, if you could go back and give yourself some advice, just like talk to yourself for 30 seconds, what, what would you tell yourself to help make that beginning a little bit easier?
2: Is it wrong that the first thing I thought of were some expletives to tell my past self, like, listen, nothing I'm going to say is going to make this easier, but you are stronger than you know, and you're going to get through this and you're going to get through things that you didn't think you were going to be able to. And you are not alone in this. For me, it would be that what you are, well, what you're going through, especially at 15 is not normal. What you're feeling and all the emotions associated with it are normal. And you should let yourself feel those. Because here I am six and a half years later and I'm still dealing with like PTSD and struggling, survivor's guilt, all that sort of stuff. So what I went through or what I should have let myself feel at the time. So if I can go back, that's what I would tell myself. Let yourself feel whatever it is that you're feeling because while the situation isn't normal, what you're feeling is definitely normal.
1: Yeah, I have to agree just that your, your feelings are valid and what you're feeling, you need to find a way to express it and know that you're not alone even though it feels like all the walls are crumbling down on top of you. But it's definitely a lot to process through at once and even after treatment, it's... You think everything's fine, and then you try to get back into normal life, and everything kind of just rushes over you from the last couple of months that you were bottling up and not dealing with. And then you have to figure out how to get back to normal, but then deal with all those
5: emotions as well. So it's definitely hard. Sort of in the same vein as your feelings are valid, the rage and grief and general unhappy emotions that you may have. Are normal. They will not last this intensely forever, and you may not grow out of them, but you will definitely grow around them.
0: I think my advice would be: take your pills, do your treatment. But outside of that, whatever you can do that day is it's okay. I think I I remember feeling like, oh, I can't like stomach food down today, or like, oh, I I I just don't feel like walking at all today or something, and and like. Then thinking I should be doing something else made it worse. So just knowing that, like, hey, whatever you can do that day is all right. And that's okay. Don't push yourself too hard. So just started with, like, all right, do everything you can on the medical front. And then outside of that, whatever you can do is going to be enough. Thanks for listening to Life on Pause.
2: Ideas or suggestions for future episodes? Feel free to share them with us. Join us for the next recording on the third Tuesday of the month. Until Until next next time.